One of the best memories I have of childhood is stories. I imagine uh, many people over the last 24 hours have been buried in one particular story by one J.K. Rowling. Uh, I'm sorry if that's you, but uh, I've got to be honest, I'm the same. I love stories. I, I still have vivid pictures in my mind of my brother and I lying in the sand dunes of the south coast of New South Wales over the months and months and months of summer you have <laughs> in Australia, uh, lying there as Dad read Lord of the Rings and begging him to keep reading even though the sun had almost gone down and it was almost impossible for him to keep reading. There's so much about a good story, isn't there, that we love. The sense of wonder, the, the trying to picture the scene in our head, laughing at strange characters as they appear, feeling the fear along the way, the suspense. We humans love stories, especially true ones. And we don't just want to know the facts, you know, just the the bare information about a story. In fact, such things can only tell part of the story, can't they? An example is uh, the the World War I Battle of Gallipoli. The simple fact is it was a failed military operation, but the story... Well, that's a very different matter, isn't it? It was about individuals from, in my case, all over Australia. It was about tremendous loss and bravery and honour. We don't just want to know the facts, we want to know how and why it happened. And for me, that's what makes Mark's Gospel so gripping. It's a story. As the Australian musician Nick Cave once said, of Mark's Gospel, he said, one is reminded of a child recounting some amazing story, piling fact upon fact as if the whole world depended on it, which of course it did. Mark's Gospel is a story, a true story, about Jesus. And along the way we meet plenty of characters, Pharisees, cripples, tax collectors, prostitutes, you name it, they're there. And within the story of Mark's Gospel, are other stories, stories told by the great storyteller himself, Jesus of Nazareth. And the German theologian Helmut Tillicher once said of the parables, the stories that Jesus tells, he said, reading them is like being a baby again, a baby staring at itself in a mirror. At first the baby's sort of fascinated by this figure that, that's staring back at them in the mirror, playing with the image, watching what the image does in the mirror. But then slowly the baby changes as the penny drops. Hey, that's me. That's me in the mirror. There I am. And I think the parables of Jesus work the same way. We listen at first as if we're hearing some story about a distant event, nothing to do with us. And then the image in the mirror starts to beam back at us and we say, there I am. This is about me. And as we continue our series in Mark's Gospel tonight, a short series on really a couple of chapters in Mark 11 and 12, we come to one such story that Jesus told. If you were here last week as we began this series in Mark 11, you'll remember this string of events that have happened over a couple of days that has put Jesus centre stage in Jerusalem. He has entered Jerusalem in triumph, riding on a donkey, proclaimed king by the crowds. He has gone into his temple, the temple he calls his father's house and he has turned over the tables, booted out the money changers. He has assumed authority 
to do this on behalf of his Father in heaven. It's been a dramatic couple of days and it's led the Jewish authorities to confront him. He was moving in on their territory, their turf, assuming authority they thought was theirs. And so as we saw last week, they asked the indignant question of Jesus, by whose authority do you do these things? Who on earth do you think you are? And after cornering them, we saw in last week's passage with some clever questioning of his own, he then says, I refuse to tell you by what authority I do these things. But then as we turn to tonight's passage in Mark 12, verses 1 to 12, he begins to tell them a story, a parable, a story which I think makes very clear who on earth he is. So let's have a look at it together. Mark 12. And we'll start at verse 1. It's on page 1017 of the Church Bibles. And really, like a lot of Jesus' stories, it's quite a simple one. It's a story about a man who plants a vineyard, a man making very deliberate arrangements for his vineyard. We read in verse 1, A man planted a vineyard and he put a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. Now already in one verse the authorities who were listening to this story as Jesus told it would have had that sneaking sense of familiarity like a song that you can't get out of your head. It's buried in there somewhere. You've, you've heard this tune before and if they had caught on to the tune their minds would have gone to the other reading we had tonight, Isaiah 5, an old song of Israel. They were the teachers of Israel. They would have known their Bibles back to front. But uh, people like you and I need to go there for ourselves. So let's do that now. Page 689, Isaiah 5, and see this tune that would have been in the back of their head. Isaiah 5, it says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and he cleared of its stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and he cut out a wine press as well. Now for the teachers of the law, for the elders of the Jewish people, this would have been a very familiar song, one of the hits of Israel. And the image uh, Jesus was painting here, this image of the vineyard, would have been very clear to them. It wasn't just any old vineyard he was talking about. Have a look at Isaiah 5 verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. You see what Jesus is doing? Jesus' response to this questioning of his authority of who on earth he thinks he is is to again turn the tables to ask, do you remember who you are? You're God's vineyard, the very place of God's blessing, a place where God works his land, a place where God alone provides the growth. God had built a wall of protection around Israel. They were set apart, they were holy. They were to be a light to the nations. He had built a watchtower to to stand guard, to oversee this work. And as the story goes on in Mark 12 verse 2, it comes the obvious time for a vineyard, it comes to harvest time. 
And so at harvest time he sent a servant to do what a servant would do in a vineyard, collect the fruit. Seems obvious, doesn't it? This is the whole purpose of a vineyard. Vineyards produce grapes, they produce fruit. That's why God has been so deliberate in his preparations. He's left no stone unturned. He expects good fruit from his labour. But if you look in Isaiah 5, come harvest time, when the people had matured under God's care, God expected to find good fruit. We're told in Isaiah he expected to find the fruit of righteousness. People who stood rightly before him, who were in good relationship with their God. Right relationships within the community, good relationships, humble relationships. And flowing out of these righteous relationships, he expected to find justice. That was the fruit that he wanted to find. But instead of that, the field produced crop after crop after crop of unrighteousness and injustice. And in the prophet Isaiah, God lays the blame for this squarely on the leadership of God's people. You see it in Isaiah 3. Despite all his efforts as the owner of the vineyard, the tenants had misused this field. There's a whole list of ways they'd done that in Isaiah 5. They'd grabbed for land. They'd been greedy. They'd been arrogant. They'd moved to a sort of a moral relativism where everything was up for grabs. And they even got to the point, we're told in verse 20 of Isaiah 5, where they called evil good and good evil. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He says to the authority standing before him, do you know who you are? You are the tenants of this song. But just as Jesus tells the story, wanting to make clear who they are, he also wants to make crystal clear what God is doing with his vineyard. He wants to make clear how utterly committed God is to his vineyard. Have a look as the story continues. Despite the fact that there was no good fruit to receive, he continued to send servant after servant to collect the fruit anyway. You see, the story Jesus tells here is the story of Israel in a nutshell. In just a few verses, he captures it. All throughout the Old Testament, the prophets that God sent to his people are referred to as servants. Prophet after prophet came to them, speaking God's word to his people, warning them, stirring them up, sowing the word in them, season after season after season, so that they might be fruitful that they might be righteous, that they might be just. But as we see all throughout the accounts of the prophets, they would not listen. You know, this is amazing. In just a few verses, Jesus has captured the whole history of Israel, what, what takes books and books and books in the Old Testament to do. And if you were to ask someone to sum up the Old Testament, here's Jesus in just a few verses. He's done it. Have a look at verse 3 as he talks about the first servant. God sent him, but they seized him. They beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. The servant comes with the word of God and he is seized and beaten and thrown out of the vineyard. God's people come under God's word and rather than listen to it, they stand over it, they do violence to it and then they reject it. And the servant goes away empty-handed, which of course is what happens when God's people do not listen to his word. But God is utterly committed to his vineyard. You see in verse 4 and 5 he sent another servant 
they struck this man on the head and they treated him shamefully. What does he do? Verse 5, he still sent another and this one they killed. He sent many others. Some they beat, others they killed. You see the tenant's response to hearing God's word, it's a calculated ascending, intensifying violence, beating and then homicide. God sends his prophets one after another and as Hebrews 11 says of them, some faced jeers and floggings while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. It's a horrible picture, isn't it? One of the things that struck me as I was reading this story Jesus tells during the week is that it would be very easy as, as we look at this story to fly over the amazing things and the wonderful things it's telling us about our God along the way. Because the story of God's people is also his story, the story of his amazing faithfulness season after season. He keeps seeking his people. You know, if, if you look at uh, Mark 12 and that, those few verses, verses 3 to 5, as he catches all Israel's history in a sentence or so, the way God pursues them so much and bears with so much, it's almost unbearable, almost embarrassing to watch. His constant faithfulness is met with unfaithfulness. I mean, think about it. Think about this whole idea of a landlord and tenants. What what sort of landlord would behave like this? Would allow his tenants to treat his servants so badly? You know, instead of after they they do this to one, surely he'd put his foot down. Tell them who's boss. No, he keeps making attempts to win them, sending more. He's like a parent of a, of a loveless child. I'm not sure if you've ever seen that. I've only seen it once close to me. The parents are pouring out more and more love and it's just always thrown back in their face. That's the picture of God here. But you reach the point, don't you, when there's nothing left to give, when all the efforts are spent. Well, we reach that point, but God is not like us. He is utterly committed to his vineyard. Have a look At verse 6, he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, surely they will respect my son. He sends his absolute best, his treasured, his beloved son. Surely they will honour him. It seems naive, doesn't it? The tenants see the son, we're told in verse 7, and they see this opportunity coming. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Jesus stands before them, having made clear that they are the tenants of the vineyard and says to them, so they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. You know, I can't read verse 6 without uh, being... Uh, massively moved. Oh, there's all sorts of uh, verses in the Bible which capture God's amazing love for us but I don't think there's many that do it better than this. I'll send my son. Surely they will honour him. He's my son. I love him. 
And yet as Mark's gospel goes on, Mark 15, Would you like me to release to you this king of the Jews, says Pilate. For by now he realised that the leading priests had arrested Jesus out of envy. But at this point the, the leading priests stirred up the crowd and demanded the release of Barabbas instead. Pilate asked them, Then what should I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. Why? Pilate demanded. What crime has he committed? The mob roared even louder, kill him. And so to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus be flogged by a lead-tipped whip. They turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. The soldiers took the son into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters and they called out the entire regiment. They dressed him in a purple robe and they wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. Then they saluted him and taunted him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with a reed stick and spat on him and dropped to their knees in mock worship. And when they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off his robe and put his clothes on again. Then they led him away to murder him. In Mark 12, verse 6, we have Jesus' emphatic answer as to who on earth he is. I am sent by my Father. I am his servant, a prophet. I am the very last one he will send. I am the final chapter in God's passionate commitment to his people, his vineyard. I am the king, the son, who comes to claim what is mine. Jesus says to the tenants of God's people, the owner of the vineyard is not dead, nor has he given up on his vineyard. No, in sending Jesus, he declares very clearly his love. But when you send your son, and when your son goes willingly, what else more can you do? What else can they give? They have spent the bank, literally, Well, in the same way that these verses give us an amazing picture of what our God is like, they also give us a pretty confronting picture of what we are like, don't they? First, we get this picture of what Israel was like, the Israel that Jesus spoke to, especially their leaders. You know, they were in this vineyard and they thought they had squatters' rights. The owner was off on a journey and so he'd been gone so long that it was theirs now. They were in charge. And yet Jesus announces with chilling foresight what they would soon do to him. We see in these verses the height of rebellion against God. Kill him and the place is ours. Israel, having been redeemed, having been given such a wonderful land, having been richly blessed, they wanted to own the place too. And Israel is not alone in this, are they? Our world is just the same having been created and fearfully and wonderfully made by our God, having been given every blessing poured out on us day after day, we want to own the place. And here in these verses we see what humanity does if it thinks God is distant or unaware or if you think the rightful owner of this world is dead, you stride around in the vineyard as if you own the place, like it was yours. I was thinking about that this week and I was reminded of, uh, 
a guy in Australia, I'm not sure if you've heard of him, Leonard Hutt. Has anyone heard of Leonard Hutt? He's a very odd man. He's, uh, he's in the middle of Western Australia, which is massive area, uh, obviously on the west of Australia. And right in the middle of it, uh, he, has, uh, he has a farm. And he had some sort of altercations with the government in Western Australia. And so what he decided he'd do is he'd declare his farm sovereign territory. Leonard Hutt has declared it Hutt River Province. And so his farm has this big fence around it. He's, he's made his own coins. He's got his own flag. Uh, everything about him is independent. He's got a website. You can go to it if you want. Look up Leonard Hutt and uh, you, can, you can hear about their, their national anthem and all sorts of things. That really, it's just him and his family, but they've decided that they're a nation. And people keep asking the Australian government, what, what do you make of Leonard Hutt? And they're, they're not sure really what to make of him. It, he's more of a joke than anything. It's hard to take him seriously. He can declare all he likes, that he's a sovereign state, that he's, that he's in charge, but the truth is he's not. That's the same as the picture here. Israel's leaders thought they were in charge and our world thinks it is in charge. But God says to Israel, who on earth do you think you are? Whose vineyard do you think this is? He says the same to humanity in the face of the height of human sin, which is the idea of self-sufficiency, self-determination, autonomy. Are you aware of who you are, says God? Well, that's the point we reach by verse 8. God is defeated. Man has triumphed. He has chucked the son's body over the fence and they rejoice in the dignity of humanity emancipated from God. But have a look at it. There's no dignity here, is there? God has launched himself at his world again and again and again with his love and now most wonderfully through his son Jesus and Israel responds with treachery, violence and brutal murder. Where's the dignity? Let me say to you tonight, if you are here and you do not have a relationship with God, or if you do not have a relationship with his son Jesus, then let me remind you of what we are seeing about God here. He loves you. He is utterly committed to your good. And the full testimony of his word that his servants have brought to us are yours. The life and witness and death of his son is his love declaration to you. And every time you hear about Jesus, every time you hear about what God has done, It is his repeated persistence to win you over, to win your trust, your love. And so let me say to you, if you do not have a relationship with God, then come to him. And if you're unsure, then please let me encourage you, do not assume that he will pursue you forever. He has given his best. To deny him now is to stand with the tenants and throw him out. And for those of us, uh, many of us here who are believers... Now let me encourage you to do as Helmut Tillicher, the theologian, suggests we do with Jesus' parables. Yes, we see Israel in this story. Yes, we see the the overall human story, but we're in it too. Have a look at verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and he will kill those tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. That's us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God has given us an even richer vineyard than he ever gave Israel. 
Having drawn us from all the nations of the world, he has established his people, his vineyard, in Forward, in Sydney, in Africa, in Asia, you name it. And to sustain us, he has given us the full complement of his servants, bringing his word all lined up for us. Every single one of them is here. We sit under Daniel, we sit under Joshua, Moses, Isaiah and even more we have the risen Jesus and the indwelling spirit of God speaking to us even now as we hear his word. Do you see what a huge responsibility I have? Do you see what a huge responsibility we have? God expects great things. Surely we will honour his son. Let me give you a few examples of what I think that is going to mean for us as believers to honour his son. And I think it comes down to heeding the lessons that we learn from Israel in this story. I think the first thing we need to do if we're going to be believers who honour the son is to be aware of who we are. We're tenants. We must be careful not to make the same mistakes the authorities make, to see clearly who we are in this story. We are not owners. We're stewards. It's easy to think we own the place, isn't it? To to be so comfortable in a Christian community to think that everything that happens here is about us and about what we have managed to do. It's easy to do that as a church leader, isn't it? To think all the energy comes from your work. We can do it if you're a leader of a small group. It's easy to think my group does this. That's the trap the Israelite leaders fell into. Or even in our own families I think we can do it. Especially if if you are a husband, if you are the father, the head of a household, to, to think you are guiding the ship. That God has no say in the direction of your family. Whenever we think this way, we have forgotten who we are in this story, how we got here. We have forgotten him who loved us, not because we are so lovable, or because he expected love in return. No, we are here because of his sheer grace. We are his vineyard. We are the stewards of his vineyard, but he is the gardener. To honour him is to be aware we're tenants. But secondly, to honour him is to give him thanks. You see, when the sun comes, when we see the word of God clearly, then everything changes, doesn't it? With God's sending of his son, we realise that we, that he, not us, owns everything. That absolutely everything is his and yet he has given everything to us. God has even given us his son. We learn that to honour the son is to live a life of thanksgiving. And thirdly, and I think this is probably the most important one to get from this passage tonight, I think to honour the son is to be fruitful. Think about the way the owner expected the son to be honoured when he sent him. What do you think he was looking for? He was looking for fruit. That's what vineyards do. And so if you want to honour God with your life, then be fruitful. And if you are a Christian and have been for some time, if God has been at work in your life for some time through his word, then he expects to find fruit. For he has given us everything we need to be fruitful. There is no good reason why we would not be growing in love, in joy, in peace, in goodness, 
There is no good, good reason why we would be impatient with each other. Unkind, unfaithful. There's no good reason why we would struggle to be gentle with others or to lack self-control. But to be honest, we do struggle at all those things, don't we? You know, I've heard in uh, recent times of a person who, who clearly struggles with patience and gentleness, like I guess all of us do to an extent. A person who struggles with not just saying what they want when they want. Of this person that's been said, well, that's just so-and-so, that's just this person, that's just the way they are. God says to us, you are sitting on rich soil, you've been there for some time, where's the fruit? Things should have changed. But I suspect for many of us, when it comes to the details of our lives, we think that, uh, that God has no say. He's the owner off on a journey far distant. Yes, I'm saved. Yes, I've got life insurance. But he's not worthy of my devotion, my repentance. As long as the vineyard owner sort of keeps his distance from my life, the nitty-gritty of my life, I mean, I can't see what role, what say he has in it. That's, that's the sort of attitude the tenants got to. When Jesus told this story, it was typical in, uh, in Galilee to have these farms in the uplands where, where the foreign owner would disappear for years on end and it got to the point where the tenants thought they were totally in charge. And we can do that in our own lives, can't we, as Christians, get to the point where we don't think God has a say in the nitty-gritty of our lives. That's the pitfall Israel fell into, honouring God with our lips, with our attendance at services, at, at home groups, at church family prayer. But the fruit that God wants to see, the fruit that he expects is in the nitty gritty of our lives. He wants righteousness and justice. And if you think about those two things, and it's worth exploring Isaiah, those early chapters carefully to see they're always about relationships. God wants to know how we relate. God wants to know what we do in the nitty gritty of our lives. That's where the rubber hits the road. When God comes with his word into our lives and changes things and and challenges things and and calls upon repentance, will we honour him or are we after autonomy? So let me challenge you to think about your relationships let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, another example I've, I've um, been thinking about recently is, is somebody, and it's not a, an uncommon statement, the idea that, uh, that they were having an affair and that they, they wanted freedom to, to enjoy that. They'd prayed about it, they'd thought about it and they wanted freedom to end their marriage, even though the word of God made it clear what they needed to do about that. It felt good, it was liberating. For the first time they felt like who they were Kill the son and your king. Take his word out of your life and yes, it is freeing and liberating but there's no dignity in tossing the son out of your life. Or maybe it's uh, an issue of a broken uh, friendship over, over some sort of conflict you've had. And even though God looks for right relationships, for righteousness in our relationships, for reconciliation, we think it's okay to, to let things fester. We're in control and we have every right to be angry. Well, God says, do you? Think about the way he relates to his vineyard. Mistreatment season after season and yet he keeps coming. We need to feel the weight of this passage. I think it's one of the hardest passages in the Bible 
It's very easy to end up where the tenants are, presuming that God is distant, that he doesn't have a say in the small things, that he doesn't care. But he does and he's not impotent. Speaking of the authorities over Israel, Jesus says his father will, with complete justice, come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. You see, the foolish assumption that the tenants had made is that God in this distant land or even dead, that was about to be shattered. And again, alluding to Isaiah 5, Jesus makes clear that this deliberate plotting of his death was a very serious matter. Jesus declares to these authorities who had rejected God's final messenger that disaster was to follow. Within 40 years, Jerusalem was levelled. To reject Jesus is to invite judgment. Well, let me ask you, what do you do with a passage like this? What do you do when you, you stare at the mirror and you see yourself in it? Well, have a look at verse 12. I reckon there's two options. You can go with the tenants who hearing all this, knowing that Jesus was speaking about them, then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against him but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left and went away. You see the irony here, the king of the whole world is standing before them and they're afraid of the crowd. If that's where your heart is, rejecting the son, rejecting his word, his challenge in your life, then hear the words of 1 Peter, chapter 2. Those who do not accept the son's word, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message. Or instead of that, you can come to Jesus knowing you are a tenant, knowing he has given you everything you need to be fruitful and also in the words of 1 Peter 2, come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him. You do this because you know you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering fruit, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts him will never be put to shame. Let's pray.